Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. Welcome to day 233 of the Bible in one year. So what you should have read to be prepared for today is Job, chapter 1 through 3, 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 17, Psalm 37, 12 through 29, and Proverbs 21, 25 through 36. So our focus for day 233 is going to be on Acts 20, chapter 22, verses 22 through 29. So what we saw when we last were together is we saw Paul give his impassioned, or give an impassioned plea to this crowd of Jewish people that had gathered, right? And he gave this impassioned plea as a way to quell their anger and their violence over what they perceived to be Paul's attempt to desecrate the temple, right? And so we saw at the very end of all of what we read when we were last together, that God had clearly directed Paul to go to the Gentiles. But as we're going to see today, the fact that Paul tells this group of people he was sent by God to the Gentiles is going to cause massive problems. So now we're going to pick up in chapter 22, verse 22, which says this, starting in verse 22, the crowd listened to Paul until he said this, and they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, he's not fit to live. As they were shouting and throwing their cloaks and flinging dust into the air. So let's stop right there for just a minute. So what happens is Paul mentions the Gentiles. And as he's at the mention of Gentiles, of those that were not of, not ethnically Jewish, this crowd of Jewish people comes in sensed, right? So what is possible? So it's possible, right? crowd was leaping to the conclusion that this confirmed the likelihood, right, that the Gentile had been brought into the temple, which had not actually happened, right? However, this response is also similar to that of the crowd that was offended when Jesus mentioned that God's work included the Gentiles. We see that over in Luke chapter 4, verses 24 through 29. So what I'm saying is that we cannot say for certain why this crowd was so angry. We just know that they were angry, right? And so this crowd's frenzy is reminiscent of traditional gestures of indignation, right? So while this crowd was shouting, were told that they were that they cast off their cloaks and they threw off their cloaks and they were throwing dust into 
zipper to shaking the dust off of one's feet. <coughs> Although it's more likely, because <coughs> portraying the crowd as being overcome by their raged rage and then displaying it without much thoughts. In other words, they get so angry and so enraged, they start doing things without ever thinking about it. So now let's pick up in verse 24, excuse me, and continue on. It just says this, the commander ordered that Paul had, that Paul be taken into the barracks and directed that he be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this as they stretched him out to flog him. Paul said to the centurion standing there, Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? <clears throat> when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. The commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. The commander said I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, but I was born a citizen, Paul replied. <clears throat> Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. And he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. Someone's going on here, right? So we'll see. <clears throat> In the face of all of this chaos that is going on, the commander of the Roman soldiers in Jerusalem decides he needs to examine Paul. And part of the examination process, unfortunately, at this period of time, involved flogging in order to get the truth out of this person, right? So we already kind of sort of know a little bit about flogging, because we talked about it in Easter. Well, we talked about it when we talked about the crucifixion. We went through that in Matthew. So what we're going to just say here is that the traditional posture for a victim of flogging was to be stretched out, exposing the back for whipping, right? So this procedure that we're talking about here, though very, very brutal, and though very, very bloody, <coughs> was illegal for non-citizens, right? So it was illegal for them to do this to non-citizens at any point in time they so choose, but it could only, but only convicted citizens could be flogged. In other words, for a Roman citizen to be flogged, they had to be convicted of a crime that would have called for flogging. And we know that Paul has not been convicted of any crime that calls for flogging, right? So what do we 
we see so they said so we said they're gonna take him they're gonna have him flogged right says in verse 25 and then as they stretched Paul out so verse 25 says as they stretched him out they stretched out stretched him out to flog him Paul said to the centurion standing there is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty so Paul there doesn't come out and say hey what you're doing is wrong he phrases it as a question he says is it legal for you to do this to a Roman citizen who's not been convicted of anything when Paul knowing the answer is no Paul also knowing that these Roman soldiers would have known that the answer was no right so when Paul asserts uh, the privilege of Roman citizenship in other words he says you can't do this to me without there first being a trial and the response to this was mere panic, which is what we see over in verse 26 on through verse 29, which says, When the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? he asked. This man is a Roman citizen. But the commander went to Paul and asked, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered, and he there being Paul. Then the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. But I was born a citizen, Paul replied. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in Chains. So there was panic, and we also see there's this notion, right, that the commander of this group of soldiers had to pay a lot of money to be a Roman citizen. So how did that work? So what's going on here, right? So oftentimes Roman Roman soldiers were granted citizenship on retirement. Essentially it was Rome's way of thanking these men who gave up themselves for a very long time by granting them citizenship. So Rome thanked them in a way by giving them citizenship, in other words, making them now officially part of Rome, right? So this other part, right, where it says, um, that one Paul answered, yes, uh, I am, and then from verse 28, it says, and the commander said, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship, right? So citizenships were sold also under the reign of the emperor Claudius, right? So in other words, this was Roman, non-Roman being able to buy their way into being Roman citizens. But then we see Paul go on to say, but I was born a citizen, right? So Paul didn't have to buy 
buy his citizenship. Paul got his citizenship the old-fashioned way through birthright. And so because Paul was born a Roman citizen, either his parents or his grandparents had somehow received this privilege. We don't know exactly how, and it really doesn't matter because by Paul declaring that he is a Roman citizen, it opens up what it leans into everything else that is going to happen as Paul goes on this great journey to the citizen of to the city of Rome. So with this section ends with these words in verse 29. Those who were about to interrogate him withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. So binding or tying up or placing in confinement or doing other things that would publicly humiliate Roman citizen was a big problem because the only way that that could be done legally the only way that could be done legally was if this Roman citizen, this person had been tried and convicted of a crime of which Paul had not been done, right? So, when these people, when these Roman soldiers learned that Paul was a Roman citizen, and they had just placed him in chains, they withdrew immediately, right? So, what that ultimately means, right, that the Roman commander now can't conduct his this investigation through anything he normally would in this instance. Because he can't flog Paul to get the truth out of Paul. So now he's got to pursue other means of investigation. And so that's what we're gonna see as we move into the end of Acts chapter twenty two and the first half, or first part, excuse me, of Acts 23, is we're going to see this Roman commander pursuing this other means of investigation. So in order for you to be prepared for that, you need to read Job chapters 4 through 7, 1 Corinthians 14, 18 through 40, Psalm 37, 30 through 40, and Proverbs 21, 27. Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners, today, 234 of the Bible in one year. So if you recall what you should have read to be prepared for today, you should have read Job chapters 4 through 7. 1 Corinthians 14, 18 through 40, Psalm 37, 30 through 40, and Proverbs 21, 20, 
7. So our focus for today is going to be on Acts chapter 22 verse 30 through 23 verse 11. So we ended up the last time we were together, which would have been day 233, by seeing the Roman commander was forced because of Paul's Roman citizenship to pursue other means of investigating the riot that had broken out in Jerusalem. And so what we're gonna see today is we're gonna see this other means of investigation that this Roman commander had to use. Because you see this Roman commander had to call a meeting the Sanhedrin, which was the governing council of the Jewish people. So now we're going to pick up in verse uh, chapter 22, verse 30. So here's what that says. It says, the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews. So the next day he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the members of the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them, right? So what we'll see in that first verse, right? We see that Paul's trial was not formal, but it was informational, right? So this commander seems to be showing a great deal of caution and a great deal of dif difference between the two sides. So the biggest issue, remember, is that is Paul's status as a Roman citizen. And it's, so that's the biggest issue, right? So what the biggest stake is, and it's this issue that will drive all the court proceedings from here on. So now let's pick up in 23 verse 1, which says this, Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. At this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. Right? So the high priest orders Paul to be struck on the mouth. The high priest orders Paul to be uh, assaulted. This is essentially what this is saying. And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law. You yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So let's keep going because if we come back, we're going to circle back around and we're just going just a little bit. So those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak ill about the ruler of your people. So let's back up, right? So in verse 1, Paul begins this speech. He begins this hearing by saying, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to 
busy day. So Paul is saying, everything that he has done so far, he has done in good conscience. He's done it in an act of faith. So what happens in verse 2, right? It says, uh, this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. So Paul is saying, I did all of this out of good conscience. And what happens here that with violence, we just see the high priest orders Paul to be struck. So now we see Paul's response in verse 3. It says, Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. So that's verse 3, right? So we see Paul responds with a burst of indignation for this contemptuous display, because Paul knows what this person has just done is highly illegal and highly improper. Right? So what, what, what else happens, right? So, so we also see, right, so Paul responds in this righteous indignation. He says, God will, uh, so God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law. Yet you yourself violate the law by committing that I be struck, right? So, part of this contemptuous display is the fact that Paul verbally fires back in kind. It's something of a prophetic statement that God would strike the high priest Ananias. Right? So, when we say prophetic, that means something later on happened that fulfilled what Paul said here, right? So we know that nine years later, Ananias was indeed murdered by zealots, right, who were Jewish freedom fighters. So we also see that Paul addressed Ananias in a heated manner, right? He calls him a whitewashed wall. So to the Jewish people, to the Israelites of this day, to be called a whitewashed wall is the same thing of calling someone a hypocrite, to accuse someone of hypocrisy, right? Paul is telling Ananias, you claim to be the representative of God here on earth. And we know that God does not like shows of violence like you just did. But you just didn't. Because I had to speak something that went against what you think is true. Not what the scriptures say is true. So, in other words, he was not only violating God, he was not only violating man's law, but he was violating God's law, right? So, what are we talking about? Right? So, we're talking about the fact that he ordered Paul to be struck. And so, by ordering Paul to be struck prior to a guilty verdict, he was making a contradiction to two things. He was making a contradiction to the presumption of innocence in 
to the very procedure of the Sanhedrin itself. So now, let's pick up in verses 4 through 5, right? Which says this, Those who were standing near Paul said, How dare you insult God's high priest? Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, Do not speak ill about the ruler of your Right, so we see that Paul says, I didn't know this was the high priest. And, and we can all picture it, right? That the, that the counselors sitting there going, oh, right, that, that's a bunch of BS. That's, that's a bunch of BS. Paul's telling a lie here. But Paul don't really mean that. No, 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 no. Paul knows this was the high priest. Don't know that for sure, right? So Paul may have been being sarcastic. Which, you know, probability is the case. Right? He would have known this man was the high priest. But it could also have been, mm, could have quite possibly been more probable because Paul had been out of Jerusalem for a long time, that he was not aware that Ananias was the high priest. Again, either one is probable. You don't really know for sure which one it is until we get to sit down and talk with Paul. But by the time we get to do that, we're going to have more important things on our mind than finding out whether or not Paul was sticking that needle in deep, sticking that knife in deep and twisting it here in front of these people that are acting like a bunch of darn fools. Right? So the, the another probable explanation that, that the high priest may not have been wearing all of his identifying regalia, which is in all probability true, right? He probably was not wearing all of his regalia, because here he was not operating. He wasn't offering a sacrifice. He wasn't working at the temple. So he may not have been wearing all the things that Paul would have needed to identify him as the high priest. So now let's pick up in verse 6, and we're going to take it all the way through the end now. So verse 6 says this, Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees, and the others Pharisees, called out in the same hindrance, My brothers, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. The Sanhedrin, uh, the Sadducees said that there is no resurrection, and that there are neither angels nor spirits. 
was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So you must also testify in Rome. So now let's back up in verse 6. We can talk about this more in depth, right? So in verse 6 it says, it's just in Paul knowing that some of them were Sadducees and the other and the others Pharisees called out in the Sanhedrin my brothers, I am a Pharisee, descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. So what's Paul saying here? Paul was saying here that he saw no justice in this court. He knew there wasn't going to be any justice done here. So what does he do? He lights a theological fuse, dividing the two sides. He likes a spark on one side by telling people he's trained with and studied with for most of his life. Hey, I'm not on trial for bringing a Gentile or for the presumption of bringing a Gentile into the temple. I'm on trial because I'm a Pharisee just like y'all. Unless y'all put a stop to it, these crazy Sadducees will put you on trial also, right? So it says he, uh, it says I stand on, he also goes on to say I stand on trial because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And so he goes on to verse 7, it says, When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, which was Paul's plan here, right? So verse 8 says, The Sadducees say there is no resurrection, and there are neither angels nor spirits. But the Pharisees believe all these things. Right, so let's kind of sort of talk a little bit about what is what what uh, Luke is talking about here, right? So Luke is talking about two distinct Jewish groups, two distinct Jewish religious sects, if you want to call them that. You got the Pharisees and you got the Sadducees, both of which occur in the Gospels and both of which occur throughout the Book of Acts. So the Pharisees held to bodily resurrection and were considered to be more conservative than the Sadducees. The Sadducees did not believe in bodily resurrection. They only believed that the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, were all you needed. They really did not recognize the books of prophecy. 
they didn't recognize the books of wisdom, which would be Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Psalms. So you see, so you see, right? You got this split here, and Paul is playing to this split. Right, so Paul says that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. In which they didn't believe that when you died, you would be raised back up to life when the Messiah Jesus comes back. Right? So, we, what we have to understand here, right, is that Luke is not saying that the. So, he goes on to say that the. And he goes on to say there, and that there are neither angels nor spirits, but the Pharisees believe all these things. So what Paul is not saying here, or likely not saying here, is that the Sadducees denied angels or spirits. Because there's evidence within the Pentateuch that there are angels and there are spirits. So they're not denying that, right? Not denying that they exist. It's more that they are denying they play an important role, right? And so it's important to know starting in verse 9. So let's go on, right? So we know that Paul did all this so he could create an uproar. So what happened starting in verse 9? There was a great uproar, and some of the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, stood up and argued vigorously. We find nothing wrong with this man, they said. What if an angel or spirit or an angel has spoken to him? The spirit became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. So what's happened here, right? So we know that the Pharisees' support is predictable, right? And we also know that it's as, so as was the violent nature of the response that they gave. Why? Because you got two distinct stacks that are within the same religious group. They're both, uh, they both believe the same things. They just believe different ways about those things. And so when you get these two mixing together, and you got one group accusing the other group, somebody on trial simply because they belong to that one group. It's a mixture of for violence. And what we're told here is that it became so violent that the commander had to have Paul removed. Right? So that's what we see in verse 10. It says that the dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul would be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the 
inherits. And so this passage ends in verse 11 by saying this, The following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. So we're told about another one of another visit from the Lord to Paul. Right, so this may have been a vision. We don't know for sure, but Luke does not call it a vision as he does elsewhere. So whether or not it was a vision is not really what is important. What is important is that Paul found encouragement through this visit, whether through a vision or through an actual visitation from the Lord. It was done to encourage Paul, because it says, take courage, right? As you have testified about me in Jerusalem. So, the Lord knows that Paul has been testifying about him in Jerusalem. He's been telling everybody about him in Jerusalem. He says, in Jerusalem, so you must also testify. In Rome, so you must go and tell the people in Rome about me also. You must take this on into Rome. I've already told you you're going to go to Rome. And you definitely for sure, for sure going to go to Rome, right? So what's going to happen from here on out to the end of the book of Acts, right? So from here on out to the end of the book of Acts, there ain't going to be no more miraculous escapes from prison. Because Paul is supposed to be locked up. Paul is supposed to be sent to Rome by his own request. Because you see, it was God's plan all along for Paul to end up in Rome. For Paul to end up being the one that would take the gospel message to the very end of the, to the very, to the very western edge of the known world at this point in time. Right? So what we see here, right, is that God is picking up. That God does not promise, right, earthly prosperity to those who are obedient to him. So what's going on here, right, because there are higher goals than earthly prosperity. It doesn't really matter if you're prosperous on this earth or not. It doesn't really matter if you have a whole bunch of money. It doesn't really matter if you get to live your life free and prosperous and do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. But you're not living out your full potential for Christ. You're not doing what God has called you to do. You see, there are ultimately higher goals. There are ultimately higher purposes for which you can strive and which you should be striving for. And to be striving for earthly prosperity. Because you see, it was God's will. 
for Paul to go to Rome for the sake of the gospel. It was God's will for Paul to be in prison the way he was in prison, as we're going to see happening throughout the rest of the book of Acts. That was God's will, so that Paul could then write the letters that he didn't write after he was put in this prison, after he was put in these dank prisons, as he awaited on the Roman version of death row to be executed for the only crime of being a follower of Christ. You see, we're going to pick up there tomorrow. This is what we're going to pick up tomorrow, right? Because you see, God has told Paul, take courage. And you testified about me, Jerusalem. You told everybody in Jerusalem about me. Now it's time <coughs> to go to the ends of your earth. It's time to go to the ends of your earth. It's time to go to Rome. But before Paul can go to Rome, right? Before that can happen, some other things have to take place. And so that's what we're going to deal with tomorrow. That's what we're going to pick up tomorrow. We're going to pick up this plot to kill Paul that's being orchestrated by the Jewish leadership. And in order for you to be prepared for that, you need to read Job chapters 8 through 11, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 28, Psalm 38, 1 through 22, and Proverbs 21, 28 through 29.